I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Lord Mike German, who is a member of the House of Lords, and in the early years of the National Assembly, Mike was leader of the Welsh Liberal Democrat group. Mike, tell me where you're from originally. Oh, I'm originally from Cardiff. I was a Cardiff boy. Um, I was born actually on North Road in Cardiff and brought up in, in Whitchurch. Just moved around Cardiff uh, and um, my children still live in Cardiff. So it's, yeah, very much the, the, the home for me. I'm an anchor, really. And, of course, I think uh, in terms of your education, I mean, what did you, did you study music? Did you? I studied music. I went to uh, St Ilton's College in Cardiff, which was then a grammar school in Splot. John Humphreys of BBC fame, he, was, he went to the same school, but a few years earlier than me, as I keep pointing out to people. Then I went to, did, I did teacher training and did music education, did secondary education training as a teacher. And then I did a first open university degree. I did a, the first one ever. So I got a BA in, in my first BA. Um, I got that in uh, from the open university. And then I did a postgraduate course in education management, which uh, then got me through my uh, formal education role, as it were. Pianist. Oh, well, I do play the piano, yes. I love playing the piano. I, though uh, as I get older, my eyesight isn't quite up to what it used to be. But I have a lovely grand piano, which was uh, given to me by my great-uncle, passed down through the family. It's going to go on through the family as well. I had it rebuilt, 1908 Bluthner, just the charm of my life. And it's just lovely to do music. And, and I've always thought it was, uh, you know, my passion. People say to me, well, what about politics? And I say, well, politics is my love, but music is my passion. Do you still play the piano frequently? I still play the piano, not as frequently as I used to. Obviously, I haven't got a piano up here in London. I, I do have a, a keyboard up here, but I don't have a piano up here. I do play at home. But the great advantage of this Houses of Parliament is that we have a Parliament choir. And I joined the Parliament choir up here in 2010 when I first came here, and I'm having a great deal of enjoyment. We rehearse in Parliament, uh, and there are only four parties in the Parliament choir, and that's uh, sopranos, altos, tenors and basses. And the whips is the man with the white stick in the front who waves it at you. So it's, uh, that's part of the relaxation that, that you just a little bit that you get when you're here. How old were you when you got involved in politics? Did you come from a political family? No, well, no, not really. I mean, my grandfather had voted Conservative all his life, but my parents were ambivalent about politics. They were very interested in what happened uh, in, in the world. Now, I came into politics uh, quite, quite re- well, reasonably late, in my mid-20s. I'd been involved in student politics, and when I first started teaching in Cardiff, I was elected the chair of our local uh, branch of the teachers' union that I belonged to, and I started negotiating in those days with the council, who had big responsibilities for education, and I thought to myself, look, I'm on the wrong side of the table here. If you really want to make a difference in life, if you really want to make a change, you ought to be on the other side of the table. So I, uh, in February 1974, I um, rang up the local party in what is now Cardiff Central and said, can I help you deliver a few leaflets in this election? And by the October 1974 election, I was the parliamentary candidate for that seat. Good Lord. So what was it that drew you to the Liberals? Well, I, I think the, the struggle I had was that I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in freedom and I'm a great believer in openness and I'm a great believer also in social justice. And trying to bring those things together... It was, it was, it's a set of liberal thinking, a, the philosophy which, which drove me. 
almost like saying, I want to give everybody an opportunity in their lives to do and get the best they can for them, to make the best of they can for themselves, but you have to provide a safety net for those who, for whom uh, that is impossible or difficult. Uh, and at the same time, therefore, I'm pro, uh, you know, people being able to speak out, people being able to have opinions, people being able to be in an open world, you know, internationalist. All those sort of things came together in, in what was the Liberal Party then, uh, and uh, that uh, belief has not shaken me at all. It's been with me ever since. So obviously you didn't get elected to the House of Commons. Uh, you did, however, get elected to Cardiff Council. I was elected first to the... Oh, well, let me tell you a little bit of the story, because um, after I became the candidate in October 1974 for the general election, um, I decided I didn't really like losing elections, and I stood again in 1979 and lost there, obviously, but in the meantime, I'd been working at what, finding out, well, how can we make politics more alive for the, for the, the community we serve in Cardiff, try to serve in Cardiff. And I'd heard this thing about community politics, which the party had been engaged in, which was basically trying to do what put back into the heart of our politics in the big city, some sense of community and doing things for people on the ground. So um, we engaged in a whole programme of, of community politics, um, and I won my first council seat in 1983. We'd already won a couple since 1981, 82, 83, uh, building up a pattern. Uh, and I was, the, uh, I was elected then by the small group we were in 1983 as the leader of the council group in Cardiff City Council. And at that time it was controlled by... Conservatives. And the interesting thing was that um, I, I learnt a lot in those first few years of the first um, um, council group that I was with, by 1987, we almost, I think our numbers multiplied by four. So we were four times as big as we were in 1983. And clearly no party had a majority on Cardiff City Council. The Tories thought that because they were the largest party, they could therefore continue to rule. And so they tried to do that, but without a majority. It didn't take them long to realise that that wasn't going to go anywhere. And the unbelievable story of Ron Watkiss, who was the council leader for the Tories then, he went to a, a what, INLAGOV, the Institute of Local Government, seminar in Birmingham University on, on how you manage a council without a majority. I tried to go um, uh, as a council delegate, but he wouldn't give me permission to go as a council representative. So I paid for myself and went along, paid my subscription and went along to this meeting as well. And I can remember coming out of that session and Ron Watkins saying to me, he said, we've got to do things differently. We've got to work together. We can't carry on doing it as the way we did. And so we formed what was basically a, a three-way, almost coalition. It was a committee structure then, but basically the Conservatives, Labour and ourselves ran the council jointly together. And it meant that we used to have regular meetings with the officers and we did everything together. Uh, I thought it was a very interesting period, but it was almost like the, the, the change that occurred by, in the Conservative leader in his mind when he saw that he just can't run a council without a majority. And then what turned out to be a very successful period of government for Cardiff. We got a huge number of difficult things done simply because we were forced to agree with each other. So that was an early interesting incursion into coalition, really, mm. yeah, for you, uh, Mike. And then, of course, as years went on, the devolution process eventually unfolded. So by 1997, it was a pledge in the Labour Party's manifesto mm -hmm. that um, uh, if they won the election, they would hold a referendum uh, to see whether there'd be a Welsh Assembly as well as a Scottish Parliament. 
To what extent had you been involved before that time in uh, any campaigning activity towards well, that? Well, in 1995, um, when we got the unitary authority in, uh, in South Morgan, uh, I couldn't no longer, as I was a teacher, I could no longer stand for the council. So at that point, I started doing things for the party far more. So I think I was chair of the campaigns committee or head of campaigns for, for the party in Wales. And I was, we were, we've always been a, a party in favour of devolution. It had been ingrained into me since before I joined the party and had been something that Lloyd George had thought about a long time ago as well. So it was quite clear to us that if we were going to get an opportunity to have an, a, a Welsh Assembly, we were going to have to work hard for it, but we were in, absolutely want to be on the right side of it and we were prepared to campaign vigorously for it. So when the referendum came along post-1987, when uh, the Labour Party produced their government, the Labour government produced their paper and decided we would have a referendum on uh, a new Welsh Assembly, I led the campaign for the Liberal Democrats and I used to meet regularly with the convener for the Labour Party and from, and from Plaid Cymru as well. And we would, and there were some Conservatives as well at that time, and we planned the campaign. So... I was integral to what went on at that at that stage, uh, and it, oh, I learned a second lesson then about coalitions, which is that um, political parties find it very difficult, at least they did then, to work together. Uh, so we could never ever get the Labour Party to work in a real partnership with the others who were really interested in taking forward uh, the devolution idea. And I genuinely thought that you know this was a really tough uh, referendum campaign. For my colleagues will tell me that I was always prepared to give up in the evening of the count. I thought we'd lost it, and then we won it, but only very narrowly. So it was. Uh, so I learnt my second biggest lesson after on coalition politics, apart apart from the one on the council, which is that you need to bring parties with you, and that, that shifting other parties is not as easy as you might think. You, of course, then uh, stood on the regional list in South Wales East mm-hmm. and got elected uh, by that means. You had a group of six, didn't you, who got we elected did. in 1999. Um, how did it come about that you were the leader, Mike? Oh, we'd had a, an election, um, a party election, uh, I think about 18 months beforehand, to elect a leader in waiting, so that, you know, I was leader in waiting. Uh, and I had uh, stood in that election, and I had won that election. Who were you up against? Uh, Chris Humphreys, who is now here as well, so... Uh, the two of us were the candidates. I stood and we won that election and uh, I won that election. And therefore, I was leading the campaign. The idea was that you had to have a leader in waiting in order to be able to lead the campaign through for the first National Assembly elections. So I had about an 18-month run-in at being the leader beforehand. So when I went through the door, it, we, we knew where we were. We, we had an organisation. We knew exactly what we wanted to do. As we marched through that door in 1999 and six of us, for the very first National Assembly, and it was basically two things. One, that we had to make sure that devolution worked, that we had to show that this was, a, that this was good for Wales, and, and secondly, that we knew what we needed to do in order to make that happen in political terms inside the National Assembly. And, of course, the interesting thing was that, against the expectations of many, Labour did not win an overall majority mm-hmm. in that first election. I, th- I think they had 28 seats. Against, yes, they did. Yeah, 32 for the opposition parties. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Alan Michael, who had 
come to power in controversial circumstances after the departure of Ron mm-hmm. Davis, and then there was a dodgy election where mm-hmm. he beat Rodri Morgan, mm-hmm. who was the popular candidate with party members. So they hadn't won uh, an overall majority, and I think before long it became clear to the opposition parties that things weren't working as well as they would have hoped. Tell us um, a little bit about the flavour of that time, Mike. Well, um, Alan Michael was, and I, I don't think he, he would uh, demur from my saying this about him, was a person of great detail in what he wanted to do. I once made a joke of him when I went into his office that um, all those files were meant with work piling up to be done because he was getting a huge amount of work that went through him and through the... I, I had said to him, look, you've got to make this work here. We're happy to try and make it work. But to be honest with you, if you're wanting our support from the backbenchers, there's an awful lot that we could we think need, needs to happen uh, from another party. And I gave him a whole list of things. But the one thing he wouldn't do, he wouldn't, co- he wouldn't consider a, a formal coalition. And he was an, unbelievably not in favour uh, by his own side. I mean... Uh, there's a wonderful occasion when a very senior member of the Labour government in Wales at that time uh, met me in a public house and told me in no uncertain terms that we should continue to press for this point because what they would like is to see Rodri Morgan installed uh, and uh, and Alan not in, and Alan to to leave the job. Um, uh, clearly we would have carried on anyway because it was important that we, we didn't think that we were getting that devolution message uh, across. So, um, it, it, as you know, it culminated with uh, Alan Michael resigning at the moment when he was going to have a vote of no confidence against him. He resigned on, on the spot. Uh, and uh, he, Alan had been talking to me daily about arrangements But the arrangements themselves would not have been able to shift the political agenda because unless you were in government at that stage, you couldn't actually manage all the things that needed to be done, which we managed to get done as a result of forming a coalition. And clearly one of the big things that we got was the the Ivor Richard uh, review of the whole um, devolution process because it was undoubtedly we'd been given, if you like, a pack of cars, which instead of being full of aces, was full of, uh, you know, twos and threes and fours, the low numbers. And we needed to make a proper pack of cards to be able to do the job. We needed the powers. So having a review, a, a big review, uh, led by a very senior Labour figure, of what was going on and how it worked was a key element in making sure we could lift the performance up the, up the ladder. Because, of course, what had happened was that there was quite a big campaign about the fact that the UK government was not prepared to provide any match funding for the European aid money that was coming in. That was the actual cause of the no-confidence vote, wasn't it? And what subsequently became apparent um, as a result of an FOI disclosure was that uh, Alan Michael had been begging the um, uh, Chief Secretary of the Treasury to come up with some money so that he would be able to... Uh, solve his political problem, but of course they basically cut him adrift and wouldn't help yeah. him. Yeah. Uh, so one does speculate about what exactly was going on behind the scenes within the Labour Party at that time. Well, I think you're quite right. I think Martin. I think the uh, the um, if you don't have your party behind you, then somebody else in the party will find a way of making sure that the, the things the things happen. The objective one issue of having that the you know find the match funding for making it happen was a critical matter for Wales. But lying behind it was this very big issue about what sort of 
Labour Party did they want to see, what sort of future for, the, for, for devolution in Wales they want to see, how fast could we accelerate that process. All those were issues which the Labour Party were facing, and it coincided with our view also that you needed to accelerate uh, the, the devolution process in order to be able to prove they could do its job. And the cash for the objective one was a means of proving you could do your job, that you had the tools to make sure that you could make things work. So, uh, Alan Michael uh, leaves, and it wasn't long after that that he actually resigned his seat and went back mm. to Westminster. Um, Roger Morgan came in. How soon after Roger Morgan took over did you begin having talks about creating a coalition? Well, it's no secret, I think, Martin, now. I mean, the years have passed. We've had 20 years since this. But we were talking about it while Alan Michael was still in, on the pitch. Through intermediaries, I should add, because I wouldn't want you to think that, you know, Roger and I are having direct talks together. But we were talking to intermediaries at a very senior level in the party. And curiously, that we were, I can remember going to another pre-meeting, as we call them, actually in a Labour member's constituency office and then being told to hang on here while I get rid of the staff and move them down into another room. And then I say run, run out of the building. So... It, uh, it was that sort of level of, uh, of under, the, under the covers um, and, and activity. And what we were doing right through that period, and, as, and it was and then accelerated once Alan Michael had gone, was uh, my insistence that we dealt with the issues. We weren't talking about number of seats, who's going to be doing what job, but what was going to be in the programme that we wanted to run forward. And we had, uh, in that election before that, in 1999, put forward some clear policies, but clearly... Class sizes was one of them. Um, we wanted to do something very spectacular for business and make it easier to get grants and loans and, and money. We wanted to make sure the Objective 1 performance was done as best as we could. And also we wanted to ensure that the uh, National Assembly's powers was accelerated as well. So we got better position there. So yes, the answer to your question is it had been going on for some time before uh, Roger Morgan uh, actually took over. So you reached agreement and then I think, was it about the... Maybe the September uh, of 2000, when the um, agreement was formally passed. Something was like it that. July? I, 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 yeah. I, 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 all I can remember, um, I don't know whether you're into funny stories, but I, you know, we, we had to, once we signed the, 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 on the dotted line that we agreed this programme for government, I then had to get the consent of the party. And we held a, a special conference in Bilth Wells in the uh, Royal Showground. And I stayed in a hotel that's now closed but alongside, and they had a parrot. And I, as I did the Radio 4 Today programme in the morning, talking about this matter, the parrot kept interjecting with F off in perfect English, right behind me. And I have this vision, I can remember one of my staff taking the parrot on its perch past me, out of the room. But I, don't, I dread to think what had happened. But the, 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 that process occurred in the summer, so I'm sure it was around, around that summer period. And I, I always said that I didn't think that the party would agree with me uh, if I'd gone immediately after and, and just said, right, we'll have a conference the next day. I spent the whole of that week going around Wales, talking to the party in detail, and I, in the end, I think we had uh, sort of 86% of the votes were in favour of, of the coalition deal. How easy was it to reach an agreement with uh, Labour about the portfolios that you would have? 
Oh, that was not difficult because we 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 what we'd done is fought out the program, and we got most of our program through. We got the vast majority of our manifesto from 1999 into the program for government. I think it it was a it was a maybe a, a probably no more than an hour's conversation, less than that with Rodri. We had it one to one in his house. We talked about that, and we did it right at the far end. It was the last thing I'd insisted upon that because I didn't want people to be thinking we're all there for getting the jobs we wanted to do. But but clearly um, I, there were protocol issues as, which were fell behind it. We had to make sure because we were and was uh, Le- Labour didn't think this, but I thought it that, that you know you have to know what everybody's doing in government. So all of the dockets, the jackets they call them, the, 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 the policy folders, which get passed between civil servants and then signed up from ministers, are always seen by the First Minister at, at if there is something reasonably major they could be dealt with. And that we had to agree that all those would be seen by the Deputy First Minister as well. So we were working on the basis of no surprises, no shocks. Uh, and uh, that was what I think was more important than who did what, but we finally had a machinery for making sure that nobody did anything without you knowing. And you, of course, became, uh, as well as Deputy First Minister, you were responsible for the economy, weren't you? Um, That must have uh, been a huge challenge. You must have seen that as a huge challenge, because obviously Wales has got endemic economic problems, which people even today talk about, and it seems to be very difficult to actually um, bring us up uh, those Mm. various league tables. Mm. How did you see your task? What sort of possibilities do you think there would be at that time for you to improve the Welsh economy and to what extent do you think you succeeded? Well there were three three priorities one of which was to ensure that we made funding available for um, for small and medium-sized enterprises that they could borrow or more importantly get grants for growing their businesses and developing their businesses it was like you know we wanted to create an entrepreneurship culture the second thing was that, that we had to make sure that we sustained Welsh manufacturing. A huge chunk of, of, of our employment came from Welsh manufacturing, and a lot of it came from what I call the supply chain. In other words, people making things for somebody else or somebody else, and eventually become part of a motor car, for example. So supporting and, and strengthening the networks of companies and encouraging people to buy and to service and to get their whatever they wanted from as local as possible to build the economy. The third element uh, was really, uh, I think, uh, about the way in which we viewed our usage of the of the European money. Um, it was no point in just doing anything which um, uh, which had a long term tail to it. We needed to make a bigger impact. So that's why converting some of that money into the loans and grants that I was just talking about, as well as ensuring that we had you know, better road infrastructure and, uh, and a better you know, environment for doing business, which actually is the, the actual overarching ambition, having an environment in which people's businesses can thrive. So and you're dealing with money, you're dealing with space, where they can buy, and you're dealing with skills. And the skills element, that's what a lot of the European money ought to go into, is to developing and, and strengthening our skills base. So those were the, the sorts of shaping that I wanted to put on it. I think the biggest failure in all this was that I, a failure from my part to realise how long each one of these things takes. You know, you have a very small sh- snapshot of time, and uh, if you don't get it right, you, you, you've got, you're making progress towards your goal, but it does take time. And I, that's, I was impatient for success. 
I would have had, you know, I would have loved to have had a longer shot at it. But even then, you know, people are impatient and want to see results. You, there's no big whistle you can blow which will give you instant results. You have to take time over it. And you have to be conscious of the big vision. And the big vision is, has to be there all the time. And we need a mixed economy. We need, to, you know, we need to be able to develop our homegrown business. We need to be able to develop uh, local entrepreneurs. We need to have a culture where people think that doing business is not a bad idea. And also that we, you know, we create the environment that, for, for cash that makes, the, makes it work for them. And, of course, your efforts were interrupted, uh, weren't they, Mike, because there was a police investigation into alleged irregularities relating to expenses from when you'd worked at the Welsh Joint Education Mm -hmm. Committee previously. What was all that about? I don't really know yet. Uh, Still, I I mean, people... When eventually I, I got to be able to... I was interviewed by the police on this matter. I was never arrested or anything of that nature. But when they eventually asked me, my lawyer sat alongside me and he said, and I always remember this. He said to the to the to the police, he said, "This is all a dog's bollocks, isn't it?" And and the policeman, obviously on the record, didn't dare anything, but nodded like mad at it. At my lawyer, I, I, basically, uh, I was doing a job then which involved quite a large amounts of money, um, but also in quite because it was a European job, it was in the title of the job that I did. Uh, and because I was responsible for developing European projects, which were transnational, across the European Union, developing, um, uh, it was basically action research projects about skills and qualifications. Uh, I was all over the place. I was driving, so my expenses obviously were quite high, but they were all costed against what we'd put in the bid for the application for the money. So, you know, a lot of people didn't like that. They thought it was a bit strange that someone's whizzing around all over the place doing, these, doing, the, doing this work and building a sort of little empire. So, um, that, you know, it, it, it all came to nothing in the end. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, but it caused me a lot of anguish for, for a good 12-month period. Um, uh, but it, I think it was the sm- small-minded people versus, you know, people who thought the world was a bigger place. Because I remember at the time, as a reporter ringing the police, wondering what was going on, and this seemed to go on uh, interminably. But you must have had an awkward conversation with Rodri Morgan at the time when it started, didn't you? Well, Rodri was very fair. Um, He said to me, look, you can't, you know, this is becoming embarrassing for the government. Um, You know, you you just think about whether you ought to stand aside while we sort this matter out. So that's exactly what I did. And Rodri kept the place open, not for this particular portfolio, but he kept the place open extremely honourably. But he must have known that there was not much in it, nothing in it as well, because otherwise he would have taken a different position, uh, I'm sure. No, and I, I have nothing but gratitude to Rodri for being absolutely fair, but it was certainly the case that, you know, it, uh, I didn't need to be convinced. I could see that he was not going to... Uh, you know, this was distraction from what the government was doing, distraction from what we were trying to do for the for the for, the, for devolution in, in general. But it was a very uncomfortable time for me. Yes, yeah, no doubt about that. So yes, you were reinstated, but then before very long, it was time for another election, yeah. and Labour did better, and they went on their own, and yeah. were no longer in coalition. And then they lost the then they lost the majority. Subsequently, yeah, in in the course of that parliament, of course, but they soldiered on. That was because uh, Peter Peter Lorft, that's right, they soldiered on. Then, of course, what happened was a very dramatic um, Mm -hmm. election in 2007, Mm -hmm. and uh, you, of course, were still the leader of the Welsh Liberal Democrats, 
and uh, there was a result of the election where Labour was uh, was down, it was a few seats short of mm -hmm. having a majority, and then there were some talks that took place involving a what was described at the time as a, as a rainbow, rainbow coalition, involving um, Plaid Cymru, the Conservatives, and the Liberal Democrats. And it looked at one time as if that was going to be the outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course it all went wrong because your lot couldn't actually deliver at well, the end of the day. That, that, that's almost a myth, that last bit. First of all, when I, about the talks. Uh, yeah, there were, talk, there were lots of talks going on between all parties. I mean, quite rightly, this, you know, how do we create a majority inside the National Assembly and parties were talked to all parties. So I, I talked to the Labour Party as well, but it would be in that particular time when, when the Labour Party had been in government in Westminster, particularly were deeply unpopular in Wales. It was not really been very tricky. And I'd also believed that, you know, if you really wanted to show a, a, a grown-up democracy, you had to have an alternative to having Labour all the time. And I still believe that. I think that it, it requires, you know, democracies require that sort of change occasionally. No, what happened with our position was that we, uh, our first step was we had a, what we call a triple lock system. We had to put it to our national executive. The national executive was tied, and on the basis of that, the chair of the national executive at the time voted against doing the arrangement with, with, with both Plyder and with the Conservatives. But uh, the, the second part of the lock step is that the party had to have its say. And the party had its say almost immediately, within days, the party had its say in Clandridnod, Wales, and over 65% of the party voted in favour of doing the deal, by which time, of course, the Plaid Cymru had gone off and done a deal with Labour. So it was a bit of a shame, especially as one of our principal asks was to have PR for local government in Wales, which I think would have changed the character of local government in Wales considerably. And um, I had an agreement which, uh, which meant that we would have had proportional representation in Wales for local government if we'd gone ahead with that three-party uh, arrangement. And of course the situation now is that we still don't have proportional representation. Exactly. Um, and we don't have proportional representation of an STV nature for assembly elections. Yes. Um, they're still banging yes. on about it. You see, that's why I think that if we got that to work, it would have changed the character of local government and it would have probably influenced the way in which and now having the powers to change the local government system themselves, the, the, the assembly government themselves, would probably, the assembly would choose to have that sort of system for itself anyway. Yeah, I think it's, the whole of that episode actually has delayed a strengthening of devolution in Wales by a, by a decade or more. You're not in government, and then we get a few years later to 20, what, 2010, mm -hmm. when the... Liberal Democrats, your party, go into coalition nationally with uh, David Cameron. Did you think that was a good idea at the time? I, there were two things. That one, I'm going to say it was good and one which was bad. I mean, I voted in favour of having a coalition. Um, I think it was the right thing to do. I think, uh, like many people, we would have liked to have seen an alternative, but there was no alternative available. Uh, despite whatever else in books might appear, it was it was them or nothing. And But the bit which did, did worry me was... was the, the, the idea of a refer in and out referendum, which was in our manifesto as well, and I always said that it was a not it was a nonsense to get to do that, and look where we are now, and I and I, I don't rate that. So yes, it was a good idea. By that time, of course, 
we had um, uh, we had you know more knowledge of what coalitions meant. So colleagues here took advice from Scotland and from Wales on how you how you construct the, the matters of the future. But the bit that in hindsight that they didn't get quite right was what I call the protocol that basically how you operate in government so that you can't do what I call the no shocks plan so that everything is known to everybody that was a bit of a learning process I think here in London they learned that as they were going along and of course it was very damaging to break the promise on the tuition fees wasn't yeah. it and then also which of course was an England only thing of course yeah and for many people who um, in uh, cities like Cardiff had seen the Liberal Democrats as a kind of left-wing alternative to Labour, mm-hmm. if you like. The fact that the Liberal Democrats were seen as the um, little helpers of the Tories to introduce mm-hmm. austerity has been very damaging, hasn't mm-hmm. it? Well, I, it's taken a long time to recover. We're in four-party four politics now. We're in five-party politics in Wales. And, you know, if you look at the opinion polls, we are all in it in the mix. So we are in a very, very different political situation now than we were in 2015. We certainly were hammered in 2015 for it happening, and we didn't recover very much in 2017 from it happening. But our run of success at the moment in both local government elections in England, 270-something gains, um, then 16 MEPs, and then, of course, um, we've got the by-election coming up in Brecon and Radnorshire. All of that is a pathway to a genuine four-party politics. And, and, and we are of the view, and I think this is right, that we now can see ourselves as being emerging from that as potential government in the UK rather than just simply you know, somebody else's coalition partner. Go home and prepare for government. Well, I, I, a colleague of mine who actually is uh, got an office in this building, of course, David Steele, said that, uh, said that, and I would never venture that far. But I would certainly say that uh, we've got to raise our sights considerably now, because we are we we've sustained um, an increase in our vote, and people have realised that we've got two extremes on either side of us. And it's almost like driving down the middle of a dual carriageway where the people in the middle of the road and on the safe part of the thing where people are on the other side of us bunching into the hedges and into the, into the gutters on the side. So in political terms, we've, we're back in play. We're back in play in a big way and an opportunity for us bigger than anything I've ever seen in my political life. Stretching back to February 1974, I think we've now got a real chance of doing spectacularly well and that's down to us to make sure we take the opportunity when it arises. To what extent do you think that uh, Labour's uh, late Damascene conversion to the cause of Remain uh, will um, mitigate that comeback of yours? Well, first of all, if I believed that they had actually moved all that way, um, the, uh, you know, because uh, Bre- uh, Jeremy Corbyn can't tell us whether uh, they're going to support in a general election campaign having being anti-Brexit, so I don't think we can yet say that they're in that position. But I genuinely think people have now given up on them. I think people are just disbelieving of what they what they say, and they, everything they say is clouded. And if you've got if you if you, all they see is more and more cloud coming in a direction, they're never going to be able to trust them to actually deliver on Brexit, uh, anti-Brexit, and that's what we are. We're clearly the the stop Brexit party. We're Clear message. Everyone understands what we what we stand for, uh, and there are a lot of supporters in the Labour Party. 
but of course they're hamstrung by their by their leadership and the way that they operate. So we could well go into a general election where we were the lead, in, and it may well be the case, we'll go in as the leading party of who want to stop Brexit and the others on the other side. And you may well ask, will there be arrangements with others on our side? You know, I... I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we saw um, a, you know, a continuation of the arrangements with, with the Greens and Plaid and anybody else who is in our camp, as it were. But make no mistake, we're the leaders in that field. So in 2021, can you see a situation where the Lib Dems would be sharing government in Wales? I don't see why we shouldn't, because political systems have this, have this dreadful habit of, of casting great shocks in the, and we're in a shock system at the moment and who knows where that would take us our whole political um, uh, everything in our political life now is being shaped by Brexit I prefer to say to people really it's about whether you want an open or a closed society if you want an open uh, open society in which people think about others, concerned about others internationalists and all that area of work I, I, I think on our side of the argument if we win that side of the argument or if we keep portraying that side of the argument versus the closed-down, insular style of, of politics, I think there's a clear divide and I think we can do really well because that's the, that's the sort of politics I joined in 1974 to espouse and it's still very much my passion to make sure it works. Do you think the UK will still be a member of the EU on the 1st of November? I would love to hope so. I would think they can. I would doubt that this Parliament is going to allow them to have no deal. Um, and I think there are enough people here with clever minds about standing orders, about Erskine May, about uh, court cases. There's enough willpower here to stop a no-deal Brexit. And, you know, the answer is, very straightforwardly, you know, either have a general election, which we would love to have, because we can do very well in it, and we will stand for revoking Article 50 in that, in that in the general election, or you could have a referendum and put this matter back to the people. Either of those would suit me nicely. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mike German. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Thank you.